Hey everyone, and welcome back to part two of our conversation with Ray Ma, China tech analyst and creator of Tech Buzz China. In the second half of our back-to-back episodes with Ray, we dive into the tech trends taking place in China that may sprout throughout the rest of the world. Why offline retail continues to hold strong in the West, while e-commerce dominates in the East. How cultural views on entrepreneurship have embraced the professional path in a very short amount of time. We also explain something referred to as lookism and how it has become rampant in China. We discuss her thoughts on sinophobia as well as the new policies in the education industry in China, wrapping it all up with some discussion on the future of cross-border between China and the West. Enjoy. China, whether you like it or not, is a very large economy, and Chinese entrepreneurs are very savvy and are now very well funded as well. So, regardless of whether or not you want to have anything to do with China, I'm pretty sure you're going to have to deal with China in, in one way or another. And it is better to understand right your competition or your potential partners than to resort to some really simplistic assumptions that are. Often not true. Home to over four billion people, the Asia Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under thirty population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early stage tech companies enter the Asia Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to the negotiation brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technology. There's been a huge prediction by those in the space of influencer live streaming that this would really take off in the U.S. Uh, and we've thought that maybe for a couple of years now, but it really hasn't happened. It's starting to really take off in India. I've I've seen it. I've been watching a lot of companies that are you know adopting my other company Agora um, into their live streaming capabilities. Um, it's gone pretty well and and growing really strongly in India, but in the U.S. it's it's not happening. So I'll back that up a little bit and and you know try not to you know lead the jury here. But are there trends that you're seeing that have taken off in China that that you do expect the rest of the world to pick up on? I would probably just say live streaming e-commerce or live commerce because I just did a panel with you at Agora's Real Time Engagement 2021 on this exact topic. And I've also spent a lot of time thinking about it because I do office hours um, with entrepreneurs all over the globe. I just, you know, throw up an hour every week. And that is probably the number one question I get. Well, that and community group buying. But I think that live commerce, you know, there's nothing culturally uh, Chinese about live commerce. So I expect it to take off globally. The reason why I think it hasn't taken off in the U.S. as much as it's it looks like it's poised to do so in India, as you mentioned, and maybe maybe other emerging economies, is because I think you have number one the fact that the offline retail right here is much more advanced and you have just different shopping habits, right? E-commerce penetration in the U.S. is lower than in China. 
And I always argue it's partly because the offline is is just really developed and really strong in comparison. And you have really the fact that when it comes to influencers, they're just making too much money off of advertising revenues off on YouTube or, um, you know, cutting deals with brands on Instagram or whatever, that they're not as incentivized to do uh, commerce. Whereas in China, you have not much advertising revenue that you can count on. It's all tipping. Uh, But once you get to a certain number of followers, then it's very easy to do the math. The money you can make from tipping, it's going to be a lot less than getting, you know, people to buy hundreds of dollars, you know, on your live stream. So I, I do fully expect that to take off, but it will be slow unless we get some of the larger platforms to really accelerate it because that's what happened in China. You, you had Alibaba really just throwing every resource they had, every tool they had at their disposal on live commerce, um, you know, pumping up the supply side by training all these live streamers and signing all, all these MCNs and giving them resources. And then also pumping up the demand side by giving, you know, users lots of incentives to purchase through live streams. Oh, and of course they made it a big part of singles day, which is the biggest shopping holiday in the world. And one, you know, one event that is a must participate event for all merchants in the Chinese market. So until we see that kind of, um, I would call it like platform wide acceleration, it's probably not going to be as big, but I definitely think it's coming. And, and by the way, we have TikTok, which is Chinese. Owned, and they know this is a really big deal. This is one of their core businesses inside of China. So I would find it incredibly hard to believe that they do not throw a lot of resources at this outside of China. I would imagine they would too. I'd like to throw in a couple extra nuggets of my thoughts. One aspect of why it is so. Um, rampant in China, so well-received, so widely adopted in China, is the logistics network in China. Now, the U.S. is has done an amazing job. I think Amazon has done an amazing job with, with their even f- fulfillment centers. But the, the logistics uh, in China is fairly unrivaled still to this day, in my opinion. And I think that lends itself well to enabling, not propagating or, or, um, you know, uh, uh, pushing, but it it certainly um, enables a, you know, that live, live streaming, live commerce to perform strongly. Um, I'm also wondering about consumer behaviors because you mentioned the strength of offline retail. Um, There are um, a prevailing amount of malls that are accessible they're horizontal versus vertical you can uh get there more easily uh maybe vehicles um are are they're they're more um spacious in parking lots i mean i just when you know there's different ways to look at 
how strong offline is in America versus, say, China, you know, or, you know, using America as the example, um, everybody's cars, big streets, lots of parking lots. It's just kind of you could almost park right in front and walk right in and walk right out. Um, makes it a lot easier. I just remember my time in, in Shanghai was you you would just try to get within a certain radius of where you wanted to shop. And then and then you were kind of on foot from there. And it was a little bit more arduous to shop offline, I felt. Uh, and I could be wrong. But is there more factors that you might contribute to why live commerce? Yeah, 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 sure. The what you're saying about logistics number one is is very much true. I'm actually working on an episode on logistics for our main podcast. It's just <laughs> I'm sorry, but this been slow. But it is one of the, you know, main factors why e-commerce in China is so strong, right? Like for example, I recently have been talking to uh, this company called Genki Forest, which is a beverage company, and I wrote a long exclusive on them for TechCrunch, and. They're, they make soda water, but about 30% of their sales, maybe not so much anymore, but at least as of the beginning of this year, was coming from online. And the reason they were able to do that, because logistics are so cheap, right? It makes sense for people to be buying soda water online. Not so much, I think, in the in the U.S. And um, so, so that accounts definitely for a lot of uh, the growth in e-commerce because we're, and by the way, we're not talking about like crappy logistics. We're talking about pretty good logistics. So largely, you know, less than five days in the coastal areas, it's often next day, maybe sometimes even same day. And the costs are as low as, um, well, the, the, the cost to the providers are in the cents in the, you know, like quarter, like 25 cent range USD, but to the customer, even to the individual customer, not buying it wholesale, uh, you're looking at basically one USD right for for the shipping and um so 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 yeah so that's a really big thing and then the second thing you were talking about which is the offline retail so what i would say is your experience with shanghai yes like the density and and all that stuff it does make it different from the us where very few cities are like that right but it's not just that it's the fact that the shops the supermarkets that you're thinking of the hypermarts where you can get like good uh, branded products are actually largely absent in rural China. And rural China, I'm talking about typically tier three cities and below. And tier three cities and below account for 1 billion people in China, right? So the tier one, tier two cities who live more or less like, you know, middle-class America, that's only 400 million people. I mean, that is actually one America right there. So I shouldn't say only 400 million people, but let's recognize, yeah, let's recognize there's another billion people whose lives look very different and they don't have access to those types of goods that we take for granted. So, um, you know, like the distribution networks, let's talk about grocery, for example, China's cold chain, right? So we take for granted here in the US that you could get, you know, fresh fruits from all over the globe, kind of no matter where you live, right? And you can get meat and, and all this stuff but, and seafood, right? No, even if you live very far inland. But in China, that's not necessarily the case because the, the cold chain, the refrigerated, right, logistics is only like 5% of the US, uh, when you divide it, I believe on a per capita, maybe it's a per square area, I'm not sure, basis, but 
but it's just like a huge differential, right? So there, that's why you see one of the biggest trends right now in, in China community group buying, which is really about next day delivery of groceries, you know, group, group buying. A lot of the investment for that is going into um, the logistics part, the cold chain part, because if you're shipping vegetables from one part of the country to another, that's something in the US that's done, that's been done for decades. But in China, that's still something that still needs to be invested in. So if you're living inland, you know, even though like, you know, like uh, even though fish from, you know, Northern China, let's call it the North China Sea uh, is, is technically not that far away from you. You could still have a very hard time getting it if you're living in, let's call it central Western China, just because the, the, the routes for delivery are not there yet or are very, very expensive. I want to move over to uh, a bit more of a human-centric quick chat about entrepreneurship in China and entrepreneurs in general. In the West, I think we saw a bit of, you know, quote-unquote, a bit of a tech lash, you know, backlash against tech that started maybe in 2016 that could have been a result of how some of the elections were happening and then you know we had uh there was the the cambridge analytica uh kind of scandal that came out and things and and i think there was kind of a withdrawal and a hesitancy and um an unappreciation for tech and what it could potentially do that came uh, along at that time and i'm only pointing that out to say that there's been a bit of an ebb and flow and i and i think entrepreneurship has started to almost go mainstream at least in the west but as you and i both know this was a dramatic change in the east especially in china where we saw even around 2010 becoming an entrepreneur was really stepping outside the norm and almost a risky move for some young people who maybe had were fresh graduates from universities whose parents and 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 set of grandparents were not thrilled at this decision by the young innovators in China whereas it it has really come leaps and bounds and has penetrated generationally through uh, the culture of China. So I wanted to just ask you the perception of tech in China and being in tech in China over the past 10 years or so and how that's evolved um, with regards to being an entrepreneur in China. Oh, yeah. I like to say that I think the government had a huge hand in doing this. So when I first started at my last job, an early venture at the very beginning of 2013, it was very much like you said, it was not really cool to go and do a startup, especially if you don't have, you know, a a ton of savings already. And uh, the government really stepped in starting in 2014, um, and, and really stepped it up in 2015 with their Shuang Chuang initiative, which is innovation plus entrepreneurship, and really made it socially okay. And there was a huge difference I could see because I was covering greater China, but also, you know, went and traveled often to Japan and Korea. There was a huge difference in how um, Chinese attitudes changed very quickly because, say, in 2013, year zero, right? Everyone's kind of the same in East Asia. It was very tough to convince your company, sorry, convince your family that going into entrepreneurship was a responsible adult thing to do. 
it was sort of seen as irresponsible and crazy. But by the time 2015 rolled around, it was totally cool to do, uh, to become an entrepreneur. You were, you know, contributing to society. You were taking a very, you know, calculated risk. And if you succeeded, then you were a business hero. Uh, Contrast that with the places that had less I would say government and intervention and social acceptance. I remember distinctly when I was talking to an accelerator program and they were telling me that their most popular session wasn't about how to grow your startup, but it was like this two week uh, thing in the middle of the program where they taught you how to talk to your family and announce to them that you were quitting your job because that was the that was the hardest thing not starting your business and growing it and making a product but actually you know getting your family on board there might be some investor savvy people in our audience who uh, may want to uh, get in on the ground floor of some amazing tech companies that are about to really take off and uh, be widely known uh, across the globe. Can you talk about some of your your favorite Chinese tech companies that are out there right now that maybe not everybody has heard of, but you really love them and maybe a little bit about why you love them? I don't know if I love them. For me, a lot of the companies are just interesting, right? So some of the most interesting (laughs) ones, I think Shein is the one that has gotten a lot more popular in the past couple of months because they have been the number one shopping app in the US, right? Even beating out Amazon, their fast fashion coming out of China, uh, selling globally. And they're rumored to be at $46 billion valuation, a number which they retracted. I, I don't, so I don't know what the exact valuation is, but what I can say is that they look like they're very much on track to beat Zara in terms of sales. And that's that's very significant because in, in that industry, Zara is by far the leading player. And so it is pretty shocking, actually, if you talk to people in the fashion industry that she and this company born out of, you know, Nanjing, which is not known as a startup capital in China, and then primarily operating out of Guangzhou, where all the, or in Foshan, but basically in the Guangzhou province, where uh, all the textile and apparel making is done. And then being able to very quietly and stealthily actually get to this um, high valuation and high revenue. And I've personally tried their products. I was expecting um, not so great quality and maybe my expectations were too low, but I was very pleasantly surprised by uh, how wearable their clothes and accessories are. Um, so that's one company I, I definitely look at. Um, by the way, they are turning into more and more of a platform as well. So I think that you can consider Shein not just as a brand, but as a platform for more and more things because as they accumulate users and as they accumulate loyalty, right? And they've also invested a ton into you know logistics and all this other stuff. They're going to be able to sell more and more things, not just you know girls clothes or clothes for teen girls. I think um, another company... In a similar vein that, again, I've mentioned this earlier, uh, Genki Forest is the beverage company. They're very aggressive about expanding abroad. They're already in 40 countries. And yeah, I I think that they believe they can become the next Coca-Cola. So if you think about it, there are all these industries where uh, Western, usually U.S. brand has been dominant globally and has been dominant for decades 
And uh, more and more Chinese companies are looking at it and saying, hey, we actually do a lot of the supply chain. We also understand how to do branding and design. Um, and why can't we topple uh, that number one player? So I'd say you probably want to look at all the, you know, all, all the big, uh, sorry, all the big consumer brands and um, consider that they could, there could be the possibility that the number one player in 10 years is no longer hailing from the United States. You recently tweeted about, and I quote, lookism being rampant in China. Can you discuss the origin of the news item that propagated that tweet and potentially describe what lookism is and how it has become rampant in China and why? Sure. The prompt was that, you know, there are a lot of regulations coming down in China all the time. And there was an analyst who said, I'm hearing rumors that the next sector to be regulated is the medical cosmetology industry, which is basically saying uh, plastic surgery, as well as other medical procedures, not necessarily invasive ones, but like Botox shots or whatever would be included in that category. It's a pretty big industry in China. And there's at least one listed company for those of you who are familiar, it's called So Young SY um, here in the US. And lookism is referring to the fact that people believe that they're economic opportunity, economic worth maybe, is tied to their physical appearance, right? So lookism is actually a term, I believe, South Koreans use. In China, the word used is which is strictly translated would mean appearance economics, which basically means the more you know, good looking you are, the higher value you are um, in, in the job market. And in 2015, there was actually a survey done for people who are looking into doing these procedures and an astonishing 49% of them said that they were looking into such procedures for job prospects. Luckily, that number has come down over the years. So I don't, I don't want to say like, I think right now, uh, more and more people are doing it, you know, to, to, please themselves and not necessarily for their job. But my personal experience in China is that, yeah, how you look is very much a big part of your job search. Your uh, photo is placed prominently on your resume. And I definitely know of people, not myself personally, of course, but I definitely know of people who uh, pick who to interview based on their photo. And depending on what job you have, usually not white collar jobs, but if you're a customer facing job, some sentences about your appearance may actually be part of the job description. So they may say things like, which is really an euphemism for, you know, good looking. So that, that does happen in China. And I think it's, it is unfortunately, I think a deeper part of the culture than a lot of Chinese people would like to admit. So culturally, there's a sense that how you look is a is an indication of your quote unquote heart. So your character, right? So my mom, for example, will say all the time that she looked at someone, they had a great smile. So she thinks that person must be really nice. I mean, it, it doesn't really make that much sense, but that is she truly believes this because these these are adages that are encoded into the language. And so it is a belief that many people are brought up with. And then so therefore being good looking 
you know, I think, I think overall there's a human bias, right. For, you know, good looking as being a proxy for competence, but I think it is even deeper into uh, the Chinese culture than at least versus American. I'm not sure about other cultures. Hopefully I didn't offend too many people who are more, <laughs> you know, Chinese cultural experts by saying that. But uh, yeah, I would say in practice, in practice, I see this happen a lot. I think they should forget you. You've been a staunch defendant, not always of just China, but of of what's right. And and a lot of times um, defending misrepresentation of a lot of what goes on. I know that, uh, you know, this has come up with um, even Agora, you know, the company that I also work at as well, and that you and Kevin Shu have have recently discussed them. Kevin uh, has been a great guest on the on the podcast before. I highly recommend anybody listening to go back and uh, catch his episodes as well. And you've worked with Kevin on, uh, you know, some some discussions around Agora and impact of both you know, the educational crackdown and even some of the influence of xenophobia when it comes to data capturing or personal information capturing. The reason why we went into it was because Agora at the time was rumored to be one of the providers for Clubhouse. Um, you know, that audio used to be invite only app where people sort of have can have unfettered conversations. And because Agora was a or is a company that has roots in China, has headquarters in China, then there were a lot of people saying that Clubhouse was therefore unreliable because Agora was piping data directly to the Chinese government. And our point was, you know, should not make accusations like that just because of a company's roots, but should have some data-based, um, you know, reason for, for saying so. And if you look at uh, Agora's data architecture, again, Kevin's the expert, not me, it seemed to us that it would be unlikely that would be happening, right? So we wanted to basically have a more civil, rational thoughtful discussion about it instead of reverting to places of fear, because it, it I do understand that people could be scared, um, especially when they're talking about topics that are unfavorable to the Chinese government. But at the same time, you know, you should not let your fears and biases uh, hurt, you know, otherwise potentially like a innocent company, right? Who's just providing like, you know, some APIs or providing some really basic data services and, and not, not, you know, con- not touching the data. Is Sinophobia a problem even in the world of Silicon Valley today? I think so. I have not personally been subject to it as much. That's primarily because Again, I'm working with people who are already self-selected, right? Meaning like they're already interested in trying to tech. They're mostly interested in investing in there. So they already have a certain lens and certain tolerance for invest the risk in the country. For a lot of other people I talk to sort of on an ad hoc basis, I do think there is this bias that anything... China does um, is bad. It comes from a place of malice, uh, comes from a place of 
comes from a place where it's basically only for the sake of the government and no one else, right? No other stakeholders are considered. And I think that's a mistaken uh, assumption. That is that is clearly not true if you talk to people on the ground, if you look at the situations holistically. But it also honestly doesn't make sense, right? If, if you're a government that is already in power and, you know, if your way of staying in power is to screw over everyone else, that doesn't really make sense, right? Because how big could the government be? There are 1.5 billion people in China, right? So, and, and the current government is, you know, in power precisely because there was a massive revolt from the bottom classes. So if anything, they would probably learn from that lesson and make sure not to have that happen again. So I think for a lot of people who are not taking a lot of time to understand China, they unfortunately take a shortcut and you know make all these assumptions that are not true, which I think is a pity because China, whether you like it or not, is a very large economy and Chinese entrepreneurs are very savvy and are now very well-funded as well. So regardless of whether or not you want to have anything to do with China, I'm pretty sure you're going to have to deal with China in, in one way or another. And it is better to understand, right, your competition or your potential partners than to resort to some really simplistic assumptions that are often not true. I guess I was hoping better for Silicon Valley, but because, you know, I am surrounded by so many people I consider friends and are very, very intelligent. But unfortunately, maybe it's just because, of, you know, Silicon Valley itself is so dense and there's so much stuff going on. But I find that I meet very few people who know what's going on um, in China. But it's not just China. It's like India as well. Right. It was, you know, an Indian investor was complaining to me that um, we were having a conversation earlier this year and he was basically like, wow, people here who are investors in fintech, you know, who consider themselves like real experts. A lot of them have never heard of a company like Paytm. Right. Which is like a very big company, if you think about it, <laughs> just not in Silicon Valley. So the lack of global perspective, I'm afraid, is not just restricted to China. It's, it's, it's for everywhere else as well. And I hope that's something that changes. Mm -hmm. Well, a lack of, you know, China perspective is, is certainly, you know, the goal of, of this podcast and something that we are trying to change uh, and improve. Last question for you as far as a topical question you're heavily involved in cross-border and you're looking at tech and talking about it uh to the to you know in the east looking at it in the east talking about it to the west and you know doing cross-border investor trips what do you see is you know the impending future of cross-border investments, the West being able to invest in startups from the East, investment from the East being able to invest in the West. And where are we going to net out with some of this, you know, even the talk of, of delisting from, from stock exchanges and things like that? Where do you feel this whole thing is going to net out in the next five to 10 years? I think there's a range of outcomes that's possible, but I am probably more on the optimistic side. And that's because, again, just interacting with investors all day, 
the it is just very irrational to completely abstain from the Chinese market because it is going to be it is already so influential and it's just going to be even more. That being said, if we segmented more finely, I think it is very difficult for outsiders to invest in the early stage parts of you know startups just because that is you know as we were saying earlier a much more uh, sort of context high context relationship driven and you really need to know you know the nitty gritty details of what's going on in the ecosystem you're not sift you know you're you're sifting through piles of sand for specks of gold right so uh it, it is a generally thankless task unless you're already very very well situated in that ecosystem um however on the later stages where you know the unicorns have already emerged the business models are relatively mature and you can make much more uh, high conviction bets then i think that more and more funds are going to get comfortable around China. So the, anyways, the ones that aren't comfortable around, you know, the political risk or whatever are going to exit or have already exited this year. So we're, we're like, whoever remains, I think are going to be the ones that really truly feel that they are comfortable um, investing in China. And I, I think that as we see with American corporations, uh, especially the wealth management, asset management firms, um, getting licenses in China and putting more staff on the ground and more assets under management. I, I, I personally think it's going to be okay. I don't think there's going to be, a, you know, any kind of full decoupling like what people are saying. All bets are off. I mean, if, if the only color that matters is green, I think we're all going to look forward to a great relationship and great tech advancements and innovation. And uh, we can all benefit and enjoy from that. If, you know, if the bullies in the sandbox just continue to choose to not get along, then, you know, potentially we could have some irrational outcomes that we would all be disappointed by, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. And, you know, there, there, are, there are like other geopolitical factors right outside of Wall Street. I don't know. There are some I, I'm not an expert on this, but I you know casually observe what people say about tensions and, and all that stuff. But I think that we're probably OK. I wanted to ask you for a couple of names, a couple of people that you could call out on the show and then we can go to them and say, hey, Ray Ma called you out on the podcast <laughs> and we published your name from her as a guest that she thought would be somebody that our audience would enjoy hearing from. Is there a couple of people that we could potentially reasonably go after that would just be great guests for continuing this conversation on this show? Ah, uh, sure. I'm going to hear two people that I follow that who cover things that I, I, I don't know much about. So I think they're great. Uh, well, first of all, what about David Fishman? So David Fishman, who does economic and policy analysis in Chinese power, particularly solar, wind, nuclear and storage, which I think is going to be increasingly important as 
climate tech becomes a greater and greater priority for the globe, but definitely for China. I think it'd be really interesting. Um, I follow Kendra Schaefer. These are people I don't actually, I actually don't know them. I don't actually know them that well. I just follow them, interact with them on Twitter. They probably know you. So um, Kendra Schaefer, who is at Trivium China, and she does a lot of great threads on um, policy. So I, I I really enjoy reading her stuff. Um, in a similar vein, you can also find Paul Triello. I was just on a panel with him. He also does policy. And the folks at DigiChina, Jeremy Dom, who does China Law Translate. Great work there. So basically, we can just go into your follow, into who you follow on Twitter, and we'll just go one by one. Hey, <laughs> Ray said you would be a great guest. My on follow show. list, I do follow a good amount of people for, you know, I don't know if I can say shits and giggles. <laughs> I do follow yeah, a lot of people yeah. for that. So you don't want to go through my entire follow list. <laughs> yeah. I think my favorite Twitter uh, is uh, for that is God. Is God. Oh, yeah. He's great. He's great. Yeah. God's yeah, awesome. God is, yeah. God is awesome. It's been a long time. It's really great catching up. And it's just really good to hear your voice and hear how well things are going for you. Oh, and thank you. Uh, I hope it's not so long before we get to catch up again. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.